Our text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-5. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I encourage uh, each time I preach, I, I encourage you to follow along in, the, in a Bible. And uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, uh, you can find that on page 812. Uh, that is, again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And for those of you that have young children in the service, if you would like for them to follow along uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, a story in there that I would recommend to you is called The Man Who Didn't Have Any Friends, and you can find that on page 264. This morning, uh, we are continuing our sermon series on biblical conflict resolution. And several weeks ago, we began this series by considering in James 4 that the heart of every sinful conflict in our lives is our heart's idolatry. That at the center of every sinful conflict is an out-of-control desire for something other than God and his will in that moment. And as we've been making our way through this series, we've come back to this point that for those who are willing to acknowledge that the conflicts that we have in our relationships are primarily about our relationship with God and not about the issues we face in our relationships, God is willing to give grace to those people who recognize this internal conflict that, are, that is going on. And this means that our ability to pursue peace in our relationships does not flow from a knowledge of biblical principles, but it flows from the power of the gospel in our lives. And instead of responding sinfully to conflict, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, looking for ways to attack in response to conflict or looking for ways to escape from the conflict, that the Holy Spirit actually empowers us as we turn to the Lord to actually adopt a whole new way of approaching conflict in our relationships. And two weeks ago, we spent time in Proverbs chapter 3, and it's there that we saw that the beginnings of this new approach to conflict resolution starts with bringing God into our situation by acknowledging his presence by trusting his wisdom over and against our own, ultimately by following Jesus. And we saw in Proverbs 3 that as we do this, as we acknowledge God in all of our ways, that God promises that he will lead us down the paths of peace. And yet, this last week, for all of us, was the holiday of thanksgiving. And while for some of us, the holidays might be associated with joyful family reunions, for many, this time of the year is filled with the unavoidable reminder of the brokenness in their relationships and of the consequences of sin. Perhaps this was your experience this past weekend. 
That even as you were gathered with friends or family and you had this renewed sense of God's presence in your relationships, you did not find peace in those relationships. Instead, what you discovered is that the sins of other people became more obvious to you than ever before. Maybe you discovered that your hurt and your frustration in those relationships became more pronounced. And maybe like me, you found yourself asking, where do we go next? How can we honor God and pursue peace in our relationships while not ignoring the elephant in the room? This is the question that Jesus is answering for us this morning. You see, this passage is actually found right at the end of what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is a clear description of who Jesus is and how we follow him in the midst of daily life. In fact, Jesus phrases following him in the midst of daily life like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as we look at our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 7, what we're going to find is that this passage is actually aligning perfectly with so many of our experiences in our relationships. That even as we acknowledge God's presence, our tendency in the midst of conflict is to fixate on the sins of the other person and that person's need for change. But what Jesus is going to reveal to us this morning is that if we're going to follow him on the paths of peace, then it means that we need to first address the sins in our own heart instead of looking to address the sins of other people. He's going to tell us that if we are going to honor God, we need to first own our part of the problem in our relationships. That's where we're headed this morning as we continue this series. And as we do, would you take a moment and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us together as your people and for preserving this portion of your word down to this very day. We ask that you would use it in our lives this morning to change us, to help us see how your grace is ministering to us in our great need of your gospel. We pray that you would work in our hearts by your spirit to help us address and own our part of the problem in our relationships so that we might follow you, Lord Jesus, as we pursue peace in the difficult relationships that we have. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus in this passage is saying that if we are going to honor God, then before we can address the sins of other people, we need to first own our part of the problem. So what does that look like? What does it look like to own our part of the problem? And Jesus begins by saying that owning our part of the problem looks like, first and foremost, submitting yourself to God's sovereignty. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 where Jesus says, Judge not that that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Simply put, God's sovereignty is wherever God rules, wherever his say has sway. Now, the reason that the idea of God's sovereignty sounds strange to us when we're talking about biblical conflict resolution is because oftentimes when we approach the topic of God's sovereignty, we actually do so in really abstract and general ways. Let me give you an example. 
For some of us, when we think of God's sovereignty, the first thing that comes to mind is as a theological topic. We, we think about the topics of predestination or of the ways in which God is sovereign over our salvation. And that's good and right because the, the Bible does teach that salvation belongs to the Lord and that he is sovereign over every aspect of our salvation. But for other people, we don't go so much theologically, but as to more kind of practical and general, we think of God's sovereignty in terms of the sufferings that we experience in daily life, and we remind ourselves God is sovereign even in the midst of this hardship, that God will bring out good in the midst of the difficulties that we find. And we remind ourselves God is sovereign. And that's true. The Bible does teach us that God is working all things together for his glory and for our good. But what's fascinating about the idea of sovereignty is that this is not how Jesus is speaking about God's sovereignty in this passage. What I want you to notice is that Jesus begins by saying, God is not only sovereign over your salvation, he's not just sovereign over your circumstances, he is even sovereign over over your conflicts with others. And that submitting to God's sovereignty in your conflicts looks like submitting to God's judgment of your conflicts. I want you again to notice in verse 1 that Jesus simply says, judge not. Now, if we're honest, these words are quite jarring. They should bother us because I think in our minds we might start to ask these questions. Is Jesus really saying that we should never make any kind of moral judgment? That we should never be willing to confront others for the wrongs that they have done or the ways in which they have sinned? Is Jesus, as I think some have implied, is Jesus teaching us a form of radical tolerance, right? The idea of just simply live and let live. And I think even in the wake of the culture's desire to believe that Jesus is some milquetoast, radical, tolerant individual, deep in our hearts, we know that this interpretation of what Jesus is saying is not just untrue, but it is profoundly unjust. And it's easily counteracted by the brokenness that we experience in our relationships because of sin. In fact, if you were to look elsewhere in Scripture, you would find plenty of passages that not only encourage us, but command us to determine right from wrong, to admonish and exhort, and even to confront others in their sin. God's love demands it. But what is Jesus saying here when he says, judge not? Well, literally, this Greek word here that's translated judge simply means to summon somebody to a trial. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus isn't simply saying, don't judge. He's connecting it. He's saying, judge not to the phrase that you be not judged. And this phrase, that you be not judged, is actually organized in what we might call a divine passive construction. It's a really fancy grammatical way of saying that the writers are intending us to understand that the you be not judged, the judgment is from God himself. What Jesus is saying is that when we are being faced with conflict in our relationships, we should not be exalting ourselves to the place of judge in that conflict. Why? 
because there is a greater judge that is already on his throne and that his judgment of that conflict matters more than your judgment of that conflict. This idea is actually echoed in James chapter 4. Here's what James says in in James chapter 4. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, in the midst of conflict, we have this tendency to fixate on the sins of other people. And when we do that, we tend to exalt ourselves to this position of judge over their lives. And the truth is, even if you won't admit it to other people, maybe you won't even admit this to yourself, often in the middle of our conflicts with other people, we're tending to be angry with them, not because they broke God's law, but because they broke our law. And Jesus is saying this approach to conflict is extremely dangerous. Because if this is the way that we approach conflict, that person who's making themselves out to be a judge of others is not so much interested in actually honoring God in their conflicts, but actually usurping God in their conflicts and being the judge of that relationship. And here's what Jesus says in verse 2. God is not going to be mocked by that type of behavior. If we will not submit to his judgment of our conflict, then we will be at the mercy of our own wrath. I want you to look at verse 2 and look what Jesus says. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I want you to notice in verse 2 that Jesus is illustrating the danger of approaching conflict in this way with a proverb. And he's describing our our tendency to be judgmental of others by this idea of a measure. Now, a measure was something that was used in the marketplace. Think of it like a giant jar or some type of measuring cup. And it was used to kind of portion out goods based on what buyers and sellers were interested in. And Luke, in, uh, in his gospel, actually kind of further describes this idea of a measure. He says, uh, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The the idea of this proverb is very simple. Whatever you bring to portion out the goods will be exactly what you get. Does that make sense? Right? You have a bucket, and you bring that bucket to the market, and you give that bucket to someone who's giving out, I don't know, grain. Whatever bucket you're giving to that person is going to be exactly the amount of grain that you give back. That's the, the essence of the principle here. And when we apply this to judgment in our relationships, the the spiritual principle here is actually quite profound. Because if our relationships are characterized by exalting our person to the position of judge, then we will find that we will be judged by our own standards. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, 
because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Francis Schaeffer, the great uh, Christian thinker of the 20th century, uh, has a really amazing illustration, I think, to drive this aspect of Jesus' proverb home. And he describes it as uh, the tape recorder thought experiment. So join me in this. I want you to imagine that at birth, each of us received a tape recorder or some type of recording device to hang around our neck. And this tape recorder only records when we are making or expressing a moral judgment about other people, whether those judgments align with God's word or they don't. So every time we judge somebody, this recorder records that judgment. And then eventually, each of us would come to the end of our lives and we would come to God, the judge. Now suppose that in this thought experiment, God comes over to you and simply presses play on that tape recorder. And it begins to play back all of the ways that we have judged others throughout our lives. One day after another, times when we weren't in conflict, times when we were in conflict, thousands upon thousands of judgments of other people's lives. And after this recording is finished, God simply looks at us and he says, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? And we don't actually have to go to the scriptures to know that this is true, but the scriptures do teach us that all of us would be completely silent because we know from experience that we have done the very things that we know to be wrong. That God, as a judge, is completely just. That all of us, like sheep, as it says in Isaiah, have gone astray and gone our own way. And even more than that, even if we were to be judged by our own standards, we would find that we fall short. Owning our part of the problem in our relationships means more than just submitting to God's sovereignty. It also means admitting our hypocrisy. This is where Jesus goes in verses 3 and 4, right? He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? After warning that judging others being fixated on their sin is a terrible place to start. Jesus then describes what it's like when we refuse to own our part of the problem. And I want you to notice actually at the beginning of verse five, how Jesus describes that type of person. He says, you hypocrite. The word hypocrite is actually really fascinating. We tend to throw around the word hypocrite as an insult, right? We see somebody doing something that they know they shouldn't, and we think, man, that person is such a hypocrite. But the word actually has roots in Greek and Roman theater. And so a hypocrite, in the original use of the word, simply meant an actor, right? Someone who is pretending to be somebody that they're not for the sake of a show. And so when we look at this, what Jesus is saying is that the people who are unwilling to own their part of the problem in their relationships and instead are going into those relationships seeking to judge or trying to fix other people, 
those people, we are simply pretending to be something that we are not. And the reason that this happens in the midst of conflict especially is because when we try and exalt ourselves to the place of judge, our sin, even if it's a little tiny sin in the midst of this conflict, our sin, no matter how insignificant or small, renders us, Jesus says, spiritually blind. I want you to look back at the, at the kind of description that Jesus gives us in verse 3. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, the, the important comparison here, right, is between the words speck and log. But if we allow ourselves just to simply imagine what Jesus is describing here, it is very, very funny. I mean, imagine you had someone completely unaware that they have a two-by-four just jetting out of their face. And they come up to this person and they lean over and they say, hey, I don't know, I don't know if you know this, but you've got a little bit of sawdust just kind of like under your eyelash there. The idea is absolutely ridiculous. And what's important to understand is that Jesus is not saying through this kind of parable that in our conflicts with others, that our sin is always the biggest one, right? That, that if, we, if we think about the, the conflicts that we're in or the brokenness in our relationships, you may actually bear very little responsibility for why that relationship is broken. But what Jesus is saying is that even the very little that you are responsible for, that is blinding you completely. Ken Sandy, in his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, articulates it like this. Even if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I am 100% responsible for my 2%. And that 2%, that tiny bit of conflict that you are responsible for, is actually affecting your heart more than you could possibly imagine. I want you to hear how the author of Hebrews articulates the effect of even a little bit of sin in the midst of conflict. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The operative phrase here, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I had a pastor growing up that used to say it like this, sin, even little sin, makes you stupid. It will lead you to do things you swear you would never do. It leads you to say things you swore you would never say. It leads you to behave in ways that Jesus is saying, look, completely ridiculous. This is Jesus's point. You may struggle to see the log that is in your own eye, but it's obvious to everybody else. And it's especially obvious to the person that we are in conflict with. But not only does our own sin in the midst of conflict render us spiritually blind, it renders us as a result morally incapable in the midst of that conflict. I want you to notice in verse 4, where Jesus kind of continues this story. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? 
Again, if we continue to imagine this, right, that the man who's got the two by four just jetting out of his face leans over to this person with the sawdust in their eye and then pulls out a business card and says, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but I myself am an optometrist. And if you ever want to get that eye taken care of, you just give me a call because I know how to take care of stuff with eyes. If, we, if that actually happened, if there was a person completely blind coming to a person who had a vision impairment and said, I'm going to help you with your sight problem, we would think about that as a completely preposterous circumstance. We know that if someone is blind, they cannot do eye surgery well. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in the, in the letter to the Galatians says it this way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritually strong should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Perhaps the most striking kind of example of hypocrisy and little sin, in this case it's not little, just completely blinding us to the truth is in the life of King David. You guys might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after David had committed heinous sin of completely violating Bathsheba, of murdering Uriah, as he's tried to hide his sin and avoid the consequences of his sin, that the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story. And here's what the prophet Nathan said. He said, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan came to him and said, King David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David, whose anger kindled greatly inside of him against the man, said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You hear David being judge? And then he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And then the most famous line in this story, Nathan turns to David and says, you, David, are the man. David was completely blinded by his sin. He didn't see that he was guilty of the same thing he was so readily willing to condemn. Admitting our own hypocrisy means that no matter how small our contribution to any conflict, we must acknowledge that God is using the difficulties in our relationships as an opportunity to expose our own sin and our own need of the gospel. Which leads to applying this to our lives, an important question. Who do you think you are in the middle of your conflicts? When you think about your conflicts with your spouse, or with your children, or with your parents, or with your coworkers, or with your neighbors, who do you think you are in that relationship? Do you think of yourself as the judge, the final arbiter of how these things go? Do you think of yourself as a defendant or a prosecutor? 
Do you think of yourself as a, a therapist or someone that can come in and fix the whole situation if everyone will just listen to you? What is the way in which you think of yourself? And what's important for us to understand is that owning our part of the problem, it begins by confessing to God our idolatry, our desire to be the sovereign in the conflict, our desire to control the other person. And instead of seeking to usurp God by our judgments of the conflict and our judgments of others, or turning a blind eye to our own sin, owning our part of the conflict means submitting to God's sovereignty and being willing to admit where we are being hypocrites. And this is where I think the rubber really meets the road and where I think Jesus wants to land the plane. Because when we submit to God's sovereignty over our conflicts, and when we are willing to actually admit where we are being a hypocrite, then we are actually enabled to confess our sin properly and pursue peace in that relationship. This is what Jesus says in verse 5. Notice he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice Jesus' emphasis here. First do this so that you can do this. Before we can see clearly, before we can address the sins of other people, we need to first confess our own sin. And the reason that I think we find this so difficult is because we in our world, are constantly witnessing fake apologies. Now, you might think about a celebrity or a politician or an athlete or a YouTube influencer, right? Someone gets caught up in a scandal, and then they rush to Twitter or to YouTube or to a press conference to offer an apology. And they well up these alligator tears in the midst of that press conference. They look deep into the eyes of that camera, and they start to downplay their actions and what they did. And they start to minimize their guilt. And they start to make excuses for their behavior. We all know what this is like because you've heard it on the television. You've seen it on YouTube. It happens all the time. But the challenge here is to remember that even as we roll our eyes at those fake apologies, you and I, when we're confronted with our own sin against others, we often do exactly the same thing. That we ourselves give fake apologies that don't honor God and render us incapable of actually reconciling the relationships that we are in. And so what goes into the making of a genuine and a proper confession of sin as we desire to own our part of the problem. This is where the book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, is really helpful. Because Ken Sandy has kind of laid out what I think is probably some of the simplest and best ways of thinking about what makes a good confession. And he calls them the seven A's of a good confession. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through what Ken Sandy says should mark our confession of sin to those that we have sinned against when we are in the midst of conflict with them. And the first thing that Ken Sandy says is that a good and genuine confession addresses everybody involved. You see, 
Genuine confession begins by admitting our sin to everyone who was impacted by it. This means that if we're going to give a good confession, it always begins with confessing our sin to God, but it should also reach out to as far as the sin impacted. And so just practically speaking, to give an example, this means that if you sinned against your spouse in the presence of your children, addressing everyone involved means not just confessing your sin to the Lord, not just confessing your sin to your spouse, but also confessing your sin to your children. It means addressing everybody involved. A good and genuine confession not only addresses everybody involved, but it also avoids the words if, but, and maybe. Right? The quickest way to ruin a confession is to use words that try to shift the blame, that try to minimize our guilt, or to make excuses. Perhaps you've said this or you've heard other people say this, I'm sorry if what I did made you mad. Perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I should have done something differently. Right? All of these types of confessions fail to actually take ownership of our part of the problem, and these will never actually lead to reconciliation. All they will do is elongate the process and cause more hurt and more pain. Instead of saying if, but, or maybe, a good and genuine confession admits specifically the ways that you have sinned. Vague confessions are not confessions at all. And what's important here is to understand that as the Lord searches your heart, or as you are listening to the person that you have offended, you need to confess your sin as detailed as you can be. Because like Adam and Eve, our tendency in the midst of conflict is going to want to hide our sin. We all want to hide our true intentions, to hide our attitudes and our actions from other people. And a good and genuine confession looks like admitting specifically how you have sinned against these people. And it's as you do that that you also acknowledge the hurt that you have caused. You need to make it a point to verbally acknowledge how your actions and your attitudes have hurt the other person. And if you're not sure how you have actually hurt that person, you need to ask them. And that is a scary thing to do, to actually invite someone to inform you of the impact of your sin against them, even if that sin in your eyes is tiny and small in comparison to the ways in which they have hurt you. But the Lord is with us when we desire to honestly face the effects of our sin. Now, a little caveat here. If you find yourself in a relationship which is legitimately emotionally, spiritually, or physically abusive, admitting your sin specifically and acknowledging the hurt does not negate the need for you to get out of that relationship to a safe place so that that relationship can actually be looked at objectively. But owning your part of the problem is just as much a part of biblical reconciliation in those relationships as in any other relationship. Always seek to understand how your sin has affected other people so that you can acknowledge that hurt in that relationship. 
You also need to be willing to accept the consequences of your behavior, right? Even though our sin is completely forgiven in Christ, our sin has consequences. We see this in the life of David, and we see it in our lives as well. A genuine and good confession of sin is marked by accepting those consequences and working toward making things right in a way that is appropriate and in a way that is actually possible. In light of that, as we acknowledge the hurt, accept the consequences, we also need to be willing to alter our behavior. The truth is, no apology for sin matters if you're not committed to not repeating that sin in the future, of actually relying on the Lord to change. And this is one of the most incredible truths of the gospel message, that as the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit in Christ, this means we are no longer slaves to sin, that you can actually change, that as you are honest and clear about the ways in which you have hurt other people, as you go to the Lord and ask him to change not just your behavior but your heart, he promises to do that in the gospel. And last but not least, a good and genuine confession asks for forgiveness. The words, will you forgive me, are incredibly simple, but they are incredibly important to the process of reconciliation. It's important when you come to people to confess your sin to them, to ask for forgiveness. And what's important for us to understand is that while God calls everybody to forgive those who have sinned against them, we need to recognize that we are not entitled to someone's mercy or grace. If someone isn't ready to forgive you, Honoring God and pursuing peace in that relationship looks like allowing for time and for the moment that approaching them and asking them forgiveness again is possible. Respecting them enough to give them time, not presuming on their grace, on their mercy, is an important aspect of asking for forgiveness. And this is why it's so important for us to understand that in the midst of owning our own part, we need to remember that this is not about a list of biblical principles. That honoring God and pursuing peace in our relationships does not flow out of the seven A's of a good confession. This will actually flow from us deepening our understanding of the gospel and its power in our own lives. And this is why in verse 5, Jesus emphasizes first things first. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. Taking the log out of our own eye, owning our part of the problem, is an invitation from God to actually see our conflicts in relationship not as obstacles to overcome, not as problems to avoid, but as opportunities to actually experience the hope of the gospel in a deeper and more profound way. It's only after we've submitted ourselves to God's sovereignty that we've admitted where we have been a hypocrite, 
where we confess our sin properly. It's only after we do that that we will see clearly the path of peace. And it's only then that we can actually address the sins of other people, that we can actually begin to be reconciled with those with whom we have conflict. Every conflict that you are in, every hard relationship this past Thanksgiving, every hard relationship that you will experience this coming week is an opportunity not for you to fix others, but for the Lord to reveal how he desires to change you as you depend upon him and the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of your word, that you are so steadfast to your, uh, with your love and so faithful to your people that you would even be using our sinful conflicts to bring about good for us and glory to your name. We thank you for all that you have done in Christ to save us from our sin, to bring us forgiveness and a whole new identity, and to empower us by your spirit to change. Help us this coming week, Father, not to be fixated on the sins of other people, but to be fixated on the gospel and the change you desire to bring to us. May we be those who actually walk in the paths of peace as we follow you on this road, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.